Death has lost its grip on me. Amen. We're going to see what that means, I think, theologically a little bit this morning, but I also think experientially, socially, what's on our hearts and minds of the events of our nation this week, how much grip death has on people, that we could be a people free of that grip, not bound to an end date, maybe is the way we could look at that. Well, to get into this a little bit, I wanted to share a statement that came from a book back in 2001. Jim Collins wrote a bestseller, just went like wildfire, businesses all over the place, studied the book, the book Good to Great. And it was a, it was a, a book that launched a lot of better business practices and, and got people rallied around the, uh, the opportunity to really lead a great company. But it was his opening phrase that seems to have circulated the most uh, since the book was written in 2001. The simple little sentence starts the book off, says, good is the enemy of great. You see, for us, life is a constant evaluation of what is worth our attention, what is worth our loyalty, what do we dedicate our lives to. We are constantly in pursuit and evaluating what's worthy of my time, what's, what's worthy of my attention and my dedication. We have been created with this hole in us that has to worship something. Even Dylan said, you got to serve somebody, right? That's spot on, right? Come on. Let's see. Hey, yeah. All right. Even he knew it. We are going to serve someone. God created us to direct our attention, our thoughts towards someone greater than us. Today's text, when we get into 2 Corinthians chapter 3, is going to be dealing with this incredible period in biblical history that's going to illustrate just how poignant this truth is. That we as people are constantly settling for what's good in life as opposed to focusing on what is great. This is who we are. It's, it's what we've done since the fall. We'll settle for, we're not all wrapped up in all kinds of wickedness as we would evaluate it. We're not getting tripped up because we're all, you know, practicing Satanists and doing all kinds of things. I'm scanning the audience for age groups. I'm looking around for how detailed I get. We're we're not practicing those sorts of things and stuff. For the most part, we are marching towards our end, settling for okay stuff. We're settling. I would even use the word stuff. We're settling for that. Exodus 32 through 34 provides the backdrop. This is the passage of scripture that Paul is going to be referencing when we get into chapter three of second Corinthians. So I thought what I would do rather than us reading through these three chapters together, I would try to sum it up and I'll be as theatrical. It's already off to a bad start as I can be. Not really. What's going on here is that, um, that the Israelites, God's chosen people have already been led from, led by God out of slavery in Egypt. They've already seen the dramatic. They've seen the miraculous. They've seen all the plagues hit the enemy. They've seen the sea parted. They've seen everything that God has for them at that time. They've witnessed it all. It's led them to once they're on dry ground and they're starting to get established. Moses has been the leader to, to lead them in the exodus out of slavery 
they're starting to see, okay, this Moses guy has been pretty patient with us. There's been times where he could have caved. He hasn't. Kudos to Moses. God's proven himself strong. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to dedicate our lives to the Lord. We're going to tell him verbally, God, whatever you have for us, you lay out the letter of the law, you spell out the customs and the code for our time, and we'll do it. You've, you've proven yourself faithful. We're so happy to be freed from slavery. We're yours. About five minutes later, it would seem, as Moses is being brought to the mountain to receive what we now know as the Ten Commandments, they get itchy and they start going, yeah, I know what we said, but I mean, come on. I mean, you got to serve something, right? You got to worship somebody. And instead of, instead of really focusing our attention, you should have seen, if you want to go back and read Exodus 32, it's really pretty incredible how God, he does like this amazing stage show. The mountain is shaking, the thunder is roaring, the lightning. I mean, this is God on display flexing his muscles. They're soaking it all in. And the minute Moses disappears into the mountain, they're like, yeah, but we, we need something to worship. Now, Aaron has been raised to be Moses' right-hand man. When God first called Moses to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt, he said, I'm not your leader. I'm not very articulate. And God said, Aaron's got you covered. We'll make him attached to your hip. He'll handle all of that. So here's Aaron always in Moses' shadow. We don't get a lot of commentary on that. We don't get a lot of information about how he felt about that. But we start to see it in action after Moses disappears the people five minutes later go, come on, he's been gone forever. We need an object to worship. We need a God. It's almost literally how they say it. So Aaron being the great second in command that he is, being the, the faithful leader and the guy who can see uh, that he's wise beyond his ears and he can read the signs of the time. He says, now people, children, that's ridiculous. I mean, God's just been on great display. He's done so many things for us. And Moses is your guy. Let's just wait for him to get back. Does that, is that what Aaron says? Absolutely not. Aaron says, it's not a bad idea, actually. We probably need all of your jewelry. Let's do this. All right, this is a great plan, people. I'm glad you brought this up. Bring all your jewelry, earrings, necklaces, and everything. And what I'll do is, uh, because it would be appropriate to make a cow that you can worship, I'm going to do that for you. So Aaron inexplicably caves under the fear of man. Remember, we talked about this last week. Probably a sense, if I'm reading between the lines and I'm adding my own commentary here, there's a sense of Moses out of the picture. I'm sick of him getting all the spotlight. Right now, the people are applauding my efforts saying, Aaron, you could be the leader we've been waiting for if you just give us what we want. Because if we get to hear this, read between the lines a little bit. If I get to worship an inanimate object that can't smote me for being an era, if I get to craft my own rules that that inanimate object wants to put on me, I get to do whatever I want in worship. I get to make the rules. I can do this. I can be this person. We can do all kinds of creepy, weird stuff. We can do all that sort of stuff, whatever tickles our flesh at the moment. And so Aaron gives in. While God is on display face-to-face with Moses, basically, we'll get into that in a minute, and he's sharing with him the commandments. God, it's almost like a ding goes off and God says, Moses, you need to get back down to the people. It's been five minutes and they're already losing their stuff. Moses instantly, this is the kind of leader Moses is. He instantly stands figuratively between God's anger and wrath of those people and his people. And because he's a leader, he says, God, don't do this to them. 
Don't take it out. You know how fickle they are. You know what it was like when we were leading them out. And your great fame has been all over this exodus. So as these people are coming out, it's you that's getting the praise. It's you that's getting the credit. Let's not do this. Wipe them out and ruin your great name. Now, God doesn't need convincing, but he uses all of these opportunities for Moses to be seen as the leader of the people that God intended for him. God relents his anger and he says, I'll, I'll, with, I'll withhold my hand. You go down to your people. Now, when Moses goes down and sees it for himself, he has his own freak out, you know, and he's smashing the commandment tablets down and everything. And he's saying, in a sense, do you know what I just did? I stood up to your God to stand in the gap as a buffer between his wrath that he wanted to display on you to plead for more time. And this is how crazy it's gotten down here. So Moses wants answers, goes to see his buddy Aaron and says, how did it come to this? Aaron, of course, being, you know, the upstanding noble person he was, he had a great response. He said, we threw the gold in the fire and poof, a calf came out. (laughs) This is not me. I just, you know how the people are, right? I mean, I just, I was like, well, you know, bring your jewelry and we'll see what happens. I mean, if God's in this, then maybe something will come out. Sure enough, there it was. Moses is like, please. So Moses is established as standing in the presence of God for his people. God's anger, his wrath is so severe that he says, I can't even be in their presence. If you've been a parent, you know what it's like to love your children. But if you see the sight of their face, and this is where God is at. He says, I love them and I will still do my glory through them, but I just can't be in their presence. You, Moses, I'll meet with you. Moses establishes the tent of meeting, which is a place where he goes in and he's in the presence of God, receives the instruction and the communion with God, and he goes out and shares it with the people. What's taking place here, though, somewhere in the midst of this intercession, you know, the the commandments have been smashed. Everything's happened here. Moses starts appealing to God and he's saying, Lord, if you would please grant this request, I, Moses, want to see your glory. You wonder if he's feeling this incredible distance from the people. They, they don't appreciate everything they've been shown. And he says, I want to see your glory. And, and we don't really know what that means. We don't know how specific the request is, but God certainly does. So God says, come back up the mountain. I'm going to show you my glory. I'm going to show it in bits and pieces. You're almost going to have to do this with your hands. It's like looking through. You cannot take it all in, Moses. I'm just telling you now. I'm going to tuck you away behind a rock so you're going to be protected and hidden. And I'm going to pass by you and you're only going to see my back. Let your brain really explode with this whole thing. I don't get any of this. I'm sure theologians have have pondered this and and tried to figure this out, but my mind's wrestling with how does God physically display just his back walking by Moses and Moses is behind a rock because he can't really take it all in. It's amazing. It's an incredible series of events that's happening here. But God is faithful to his promise. He shows Moses his glory. And the effect of that vision is that as Moses comes down off the mountain, he is glowing. His face is shining and people are in awe of it. They're distracted. They're fearful of it because again, they know they've been in the wrong and here their leader is coming down from the mountain in full display of God's glory. This is the event that Paul is going to start referencing. He's referencing these events to expose the deadly desire that some in the Corinthian church had for staying stuck in what was good (laughs) 
rather than pursuing what was best. In other words, some were trying to remove or take the attention away from this life-giving work of the Spirit in order to return the people back to this man-made or this kind of systematic way of showing that you're faithful, this, this religious death grip of the law. Death has lost its grip on me, we just sang. So 2 Corinthians 3, we're going to just do a couple of verses in review from last week. In verse 4, Paul said, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. So there's his supply of self-confidence, or his supply of confidence, I should say. Verse 5, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Remember the we's and the ours in Paul's language is the apostles. He's saying our sufficiency is from God. We said that Paul might say to us more pointedly, don't waste your time on self-sufficiency. That this is a thing that is developed in the person only through Christ. Paul's resume didn't cut it anymore. It didn't matter. Everything that Paul brought to the table in his experience, his intellect, his skills, and his tenacity was knocked off a horse by the voice of Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus and said, I don't care about any of that stuff anymore. I'm calling you to be what we'll see in chapter four, a a jar of clay, a a broken vessel that's weak and fragile, and I'm going to do great things through it. I don't need your resume anymore, Paul. He says, this is from God. And then verse six, which is what we couldn't get to last week, says, God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter or the law kills, but the spirit gives life. Paul's not saying that the letter is intentionally murdering. He's saying it doesn't produce anything. It doesn't produce the life that is required for you and I to be good. That the law just is. It's an inanimate object. It's a display of God's character. His holiness is everything that he is, but it's, it's not personal. There's no life to it. It's distant. It's hung over us as a law would be. So he says the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. It reveals God's will without granting the power to keep it. But he says the spirit that gives life, this is the same spirit. Paul's making this point very specifically that this same spirit that was with, that was presenting to Moses is the one that's, that's working on Paul, which is the one that creates life for all those who will follow Christ will have. And that this life is an internal renewal that only the spirit can change the heart. It's an enabling to even be what the law would call us to be. He strengthens this with the prophets. This is the the announcement, if you will, of a, a new covenant coming. The old covenant is obey my laws and you'll be my people. The new covenant changes. Jeremiah 31 He says through his prophet, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, I must add and remind you all, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them 
and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the last of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Paul is going to demonstrate in the passage before us this morning that the strength of the new covenant is there by its superiority over the old covenant. He uses a, a, a common uh, argument, form of argument for us now, but at the time it was a very Hebrew kind of, I'll take what's lesser and I'll, I'll outshine it or I'll reduce it by presenting what's greater. We're in a product-driven society. We know that the toothpaste we had last year is going to be new and improved this year. And we're going to go, well, what was the stuff that we were using on our teeth before? I thought I was showing these pearly whites, but apparently not because this one's three times stronger. We're used to this in a product environment. Someone's always telling us, oh, the old thing, that's <laughs> don't do that anymore. This is new and improved. And if Billy Mays were still walking this earth, we could use him to probably pitch some of this in a way that would speak to us. But that falls short of comprehending what God is really putting on display between the old covenant and the new. What happened in the old covenant wasn't a failed plan. This wasn't something where God said, I didn't see this one through. I put this law thing out thinking they could do it. It didn't really work. So now I got to come up with plan B. This isn't what was happening between the covenants. Paul is going to turn the corner. He's been saying all along, it's not about my resume. Don't make this a big deal about Paul, all that kind of thing. He says, but now he's going to get into the place of what I represent as an apostle is something greater than what we were settling for before. And so it's going to sound a little bit, if we didn't have all this background, if we dove into this passage without understanding all the things that Paul was putting on display about, kill my resume, forget all the good stuff I can bring. If we dove into some of this language, we'd be like, boy, he's really kind of full of himself. My ministry's better than Moses. You know, I'm cooler. My stuff's shinier. This is more effective. But we know that's not the spirit in which it's being delivered in. It's got to be something else. And this will tie in to our conversation last week about where confidence comes from. But we'll get there. Moving it uh, forward into new verses here in chapter 3, we begin in verse 7. Paul says, Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more Glory. If, if Paul were pitching a product, which of course we're hoping he's not, we know he's not. He would say what you thought was shiny before is now three times shinier or shinier in general. You see the effect that this ministry of death, what a sobering phrase that is. When he's referring to the old covenant, it was a ministry of death, not because it was actively engaging in killing, but because, again, it didn't produce life. He said, so this ministry of death led to a glory or still was accompanied by a glory that people had a hard time looking at. Moses' face was shining. Paul's saying even in a ministry of death, glory of God was seen all over it. So how much more this ministry of, of life that's being brought to us is going to shine even brighter? 
And Paul uses a key phrase in here. He says that this was being brought to an end. This is why the, the illustration of the old product has now been improved upon. Doesn't quite work for what's really going on here theologically. What God intended was for the old covenant to be led up to a point, kind of like walking up to a cliff and saying, but it's only able to take us this far. And we stand at the edge of the cliff and we go, well, what do we do now? And that's when the new covenant comes. It was meant to lead us and instruct us to a place of understanding. We can't do it. You know, so many of us have been raised under a system that says, if you just live out the 10 commandments, God will be, you know, in favor of you, that you'll be making God happy. So just don't break any of the laws. We are the children of Israel. As soon as the, the spiritual leader, our parents leave the room, we break that law. As soon as Moses goes up the mountain, I can't do that. You see, the intention of the law was to show you really can't. There's nothing in you or me that is holy enough to really carry this all out. Some of them might feel like it comes a little easier to us. You know, some of us are like, well, I'm not a gossiper, but you know, I'm, I'm tempted by the adultery thing or I'm not this, but I'm that and stuff. And we pick and choose, but the scripture tells us that if you're guilty in one point, you're guilty of the whole thing. That's who we are. We are guilty. The old covenant, the presentation of the law did its job. It led us almost like the schoolmaster Paul uses in other passages of scripture. It's like the schoolmaster who's bringing us to the schoolhouse to say, now what you're going to see on display here is your doom. Yikes. Who wants to see that? It leads us to a point so that hope can come in the ministry of life. So Paul is saying that if that stark and and dark presentation of the law still had a brilliant glow about it. How much more the ministry of life? He continues in verse nine. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, it's another new phrase, but just kind of strengthening it, making it even, even heavier on us. This is what Moses had to conduct after the children of Israel failed yet again, is this ministry of condemnation. The ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. So this new covenant has even more effective outcomes. A ministry of condemnation is one that is basically the slap of the wrist every time we go reach for the light socket. This is how we have to raise children. We have to raise children that for a period of time, there isn't a lot of room for explanation. There isn't a lot of room for leeway about, well, we'll just see if they handle themselves okay near the swimming pool or something like that. That there are certain safeties and disciplines and interventions we have to have while children are young for their own safety. Lesson learned later. And so we get in the habit of don't touch the light socket, <clears throat> stay away from the pool when you're not you know, good on your feet and you don't have a life jacket or make sure you click the seatbelt or we do those kinds of things. And that's what the ministry of, of the condemnation, the, the ministry of condemnation was all about. It was a lot of wrist slapping and stay away from that. Don't touch the light socket. And, and people had to be treated like children because they were just walking to the edge of the pool. Oh, well. God said, that's not how you stay alive. That's not how you please me. 
But a ministry of righteousness is one that says, because my, I've moved into your heart and I've given you the desire now to keep the law, is you're looking at the light socket saying, I'm not sure that's good for me. I've been told in my upbringing that if I go near the light socket and I'm careless with it, I'll probably pay the consequences. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to exercise some caution and reason, and I'm going to desire life more than I am the ability to get away with touching that light socket. Because it's part of what's in me now, the spirit of Christ is in me saying, don't you desire an electrified free life? Don't you like your hair being able to go down instead of being stuck like this all the time? And we start to desire those things because of what the spirit is born within us. Now, the reason why there were many people in Paul's day trying to lead back to religion and the condemnation of the law is because of the control that's contained in that. From a leader's perspective, if you can lead an organization where everyone's got to do what you say is right or wrong, there's power in that. Shouldn't be a mystery to us as to why that would be appealing to mankind. We like to be in control. And so if you can have a legion of people doing everything that you say needs to be done, you jump and you bow and you do all this kind of stuff. It's what people like to control things. But let's not just blame the leader. Let's also remind ourselves that often what is attractive to us in religious settings is the control we have on our own actions. I, I, I think it was interesting the way that um, Pastor Ben said it this morning when he was introducing the elements of the communion table and he was saying how we do this once a month and this is an opportunity for us to get right with God. And as I was thinking about this in relation to the message, I was like, you know, we could be so quick to manipulate a once a month opportunity that says that's my time to evaluate whether or not I'm walking with Christ. That's my opportunity to figure out whether or not my heart's pure. I'm not going to confess sin or live in that kind of continual um, availability to the spirit. But when I get to faith that first Sunday of every month, I know that they'll say the right thing that'll click me into it. That's what we like. We like predictability. We like control. We like Saturday night confession. We like all those kinds of things because it frees us up to do the other things that we think we want to do, which equals a ministry of death. This was being brought to an end. It was a ministry of condemnation, but it was attractive because it met all the immediate control that people crave. So Paul is calling us to live by the spirit, to live with this built in righteousness that the sacrifice of Christ has provided, and it's a fulfillment of the Jeremiah passage. But it was also announced through another prophet in Ezekiel, in chapter 11. This is what God says, I'm going to do under this new covenant. He says, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. You see the order? He says, I will move within them and I will give them a heart of flesh that they may do these things. This is the, the exact opposite of religion. I've got to be good. I've got to be available. I got to give more. I got to attend more. I got to do all those things so that God would be pleased with me. He says, no, I'm going to give them the power to do this and they shall be my people and I will be their God. So Paul continues in verse 11. He says, for if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent 
have glory. You see, the new covenant has longer lasting results. It doesn't fade away. There was a, a, there's speculation as to why Moses kept putting a veil over his face. But what would happen is when he would go and, and see the Lord in the tent of meeting, he would have the veil removed off his face and, and, and God's glory would, would shine. And he'd go out and he'd deliver the message to the people that God had told him. And as soon as he was done, he'd put the veil back over. And some have speculated, and I think Paul even emphasizes this here. I think he gives us some clarity on this coming up. That Moses didn't want people to observe and to focus on the glory that would soon fade. So he said, this is what God said, and that's all you get. It wasn't like, I'm embarrassed the way you're looking at me, too much attention to my glowing face, and oh, stop it, shucks. He said, this glory was not intended to last. There is a glory coming, as the prophets would eventually speak of, that would be within the hearts of men, that would shine brighter than what I'm receiving just being on the mountain or in the tent of meeting. So, whoop, that's all you get. And he would veil his face. I think also as we move into this next section of of scripture here, the next paragraph beginning in verse 12, we understand that the ministry that Paul represents gets the job done more than the ministry that even Moses represented. He says in verse 12, he says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. It's a little bit different for us to hear coming from Paul. Paul's reputation was he's timid, he's gentle, he's not as bold in person as he seems to be in the letters. And Paul, we'd like to see this side of you some more. Where's this side of you? So Paul finally gets there and says where our boldness will be is in the hope that we have, in the truth that we have, not in what I can produce, because what I produce fades in glory. But what Christ is doing in the heavenlies and what he's doing in the hearts of his people, that glory never fades away. Therefore, I have hope in that and I can be extremely bold. Hope was in the life of the spirit because Paul was doing a mission that was eternal. Last week, we talked about the two needs that people have acceptance and purpose. Paul's boldness was in the purpose that was greater than anything he could have accomplished in his career. Paul's purpose was being found in doing the thing that never fades away, where the glory doesn't start getting all, all buffed out and it starts to fade away that way. He was serving a purpose that no one could ever detract from. So Paul had a boldness. You and I find our purpose in doing the eternal. You say, well, I don't do the eternal. I do lumberyard or I do, you know, um, janitorial work or I do medical offices or I do any of those kinds of things. That's not eternal. I love this movement that's starting to happen in the church universal where there's more emphasis on the fact that our work has been given to us as an act of worship to our living God. That we have for too long seen the people that are ministering in the pulpits or in the bands or those are the people doing the eternal work where the focus is now starting to give the church confidence and courage in knowing that I represent the Lord Jesus Christ, that my, as we talked about last week, my want to or my drive for work is something that was given to me even before the fall of man. That God put in me a desire to recreate in my world to reflect him. So when I work in the lumberyard or the medical office or any of those other kinds of places, when I do that well as unto the Lord, his glory is seen and that glory is one that doesn't fade away. 
This is where Paul's confidence came from, is that I am doing eternal work. Everything I was doing before was for me. You know, and the dirty little secret is I can be up here, getting froggy, sorry about that. I can be up here doing what you think is spiritual and eternal all for me. You see, I have the responsibility of everything I do, doing it as unto the Lord. It isn't the activity that I'm doing that produces anything that has that long-lasting glory. If I'm up here doing this for acceptance and approval and purpose outside of the will of God, it will become clearly evident to you, and God's glory will struggle and suffer because of it. But he will find somebody else to share that glory through. So you and I have, the, <clears throat> excuse me, you and I have the same dilemma. Is what we do for eternal purposes or just for my earthly gain? Am I in my career? <clears throat> Man, I am getting, all right, I have to do this. Hold on. <clears throat> Talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> Who knows if that helps, but it felt good. <clears throat> I couldn't stop singing to the worship this morning. And I'm trying, like, sometimes I try to do the Britney Spears lip sync thing so I don't lose my voice. But I was like, oh, you got to sing that stuff. So Okay, where was I? Let's dive right back into the text. Try not to pretend to pick up where my thought was. Verse 13. He's talking about where we get this boldness from. And he says, not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened for to this day, when they read the old covenant, that's those who appreciate the old covenant and still live in it, denying that Jesus has come, denying that he's the Messiah. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. You've had this before. You've had that time where all of a sudden the Lord just opened your eyes to the scriptures. How does that happen? Verse 16 says, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. I wonder if you would think about it from the seat that you're in now. Like, when was the time that I felt like, wow, the scriptures started coming alive? They made sense. We have so many people that make their way over to faith because they're they're leaving a church system or an environment where they said they weren't really giving us access to the word of God. It was discouraged that we would even know the Bible. And I just can't explain it, but I have this hunger to know what are on these pages. And as I read them, I start to take in more and more. My eyes get open wider and wider. The light shines brighter and brighter. And Paul is saying that when one turns to the Lord in surrender, that veil is removed. This is why I believe that conversion is never solely an intellectual convincing. That it is important for us to have what is called apologetics, which is a defense of the faith. It's important for us to be philosophically accurate and sharp. When we hear Dr. Chris next week, you're going to see somebody who's very, very sharp uh, philosophically. And it's important for us because some people's minds have to go almost to the end of that road to understand that God really does have more answers than I have questions. And some people need to be humbled and brought through that process. Some of our great leaders in the church have been down that road where their brain just needed to be tweaked to be like, okay, I can't figure them out anymore. 
But ultimately, you never get every answer to your question. Paul is saying at some point you turn and surrender to the Lord and say, he's going to have to show me the rest. And he does. You know, it helps us to understand this as we approach the scriptures. It's, it's, it's starting to think about, do I remember when it started coming alive to me, the excitement of that? But also as we read it, the, the hang up that they had is every time they were reading the, the letter in the old covenant, they were only reading it for today, but it was intended to point towards the fix and the answer that was to come. And that was the person of Jesus Christ. So the question could be for us is when we read the scriptures, both old and new testaments, can we stop and say, who is Jesus and where is he in this passage? Cause he's there. Some passages he's probably veiled maybe a little bit more and, and the meaning of it might be a little bit uh, buried or nuanced, but Jesus is pointed to in, from cover to cover in the scriptures. So it's just as you get used to reading your Bible and you start to take in more and more truth, just learn to ask that question. Who is Jesus in this passage? What, what fulfillment did he eventually bring that this passage is addressing? And you start to see that he shows up on every page. Maybe more personally, you start to ask the question, no matter what you're reading, how did Jesus fulfill this, whatever I'm reading, fill in the blank, how did Jesus fulfill that for me? You see, that's the difference between the old covenant and the new. The old covenant says you've got to jump high enough in order to attain God's holiness. The new covenant says I'm going to bring my holiness down to you in the person of Jesus Christ. He'll lay it all down. He'll sacrifice everything, giving you access to have that now within your hearts. And this, uh, Paul brings us to a verse that we love and we so often quote that hopefully now in its context will be even more powerful to us. In verse 17, he says, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We have a freedom from us, from our own condemnation, from our sin, from all the guilt that we carry in, from, from the ministry of death that we were conducting in our own lives, just marching towards the cliff of the old covenant. We have a freedom from the blindness to the gospel that now it means something to us. Now we receive it. Now we see it for all of its truth. There's a freedom from that block. But there's also a freedom towards access to the presence of God. We're not shut out of the tent. We don't have to just watch one person walk in and come out with the glowy face. That now because Jesus has said, I've made my presence available to you, that we come into our own tent of meeting wherever we are, and we have access to the Father through the person of Jesus Christ. And that his glory, as Paul is saying, is shining even brighter than what was all over Moses' skin. So Paul wraps it up in verse 18. He says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. Remember, they couldn't look at it before. Now we're soaking it in, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. The transformation that comes, we've, we've seen a boldness that comes now from the new covenant. We have an unveiling that happens. We have freedom in the spirit and we also have a transformation that allows us to be like Jesus. Not just a good example. This is what is so often missing out in the world is that Jesus is a good guy. 
You very rarely find anybody in mainstream America anymore who thinks that Jesus didn't leave an example worthy of following. Most people would be like, yeah, we should be more like Jesus. There's not a lot of hostility towards that thought. But understanding that he is the very son of God, that he is our righteousness, that when we receive Christ, that there's a transformation, that he becomes the good in us. That I don't have to just copycat what Jesus did, but I can surrender my life to letting him live through me. This is the transformation that comes. This is why Paul is saying, I am beyond bold with this ministry. I know I'm not giving you what you guys want. I know it's not a lot of Paul bat, bat, uh, patting myself on the back. I know I'm not doing all that because I don't care about that stuff. That's not the ministry I'm engaged in. I'm engaged in the ministry of, of the new covenant that will never, ever fade in glory. And because of that, no matter what you ask of me, no matter what resume you need, no matter any of those things, it just doesn't appeal to me. I've been down that road and the glory fades. Everything fades except for him. A Scottish preacher, his name's A.J. Gossip. He shares a story of remembering his time in a school uh, a religious school it must have been because the school principal would share at the communion table and he would challenge the students with this little lecture. And so he recalls it and shares it with us. The principal would say, do you believe your faith? He asked, do you believe this? I'm telling you, do you believe a day is coming? I mean, really coming when you will stand before the throne of God and the angels will whisper together and say how like Christ he is. It's not easy to believe, and yet to not believe it is blasphemy. For that, not less than that, is what Christ promises. You and I go through a slow transformation this side of heaven. That God is reworking us, that we still get tripped up with our old habits, that we continue to surrender to him, or we, we go through this process of I'm rededicating myself to the Lord, and that seems to always start over again. This side of eternity, that transformation uh, takes place. It wafts and wanes. It's like a roller coaster or something. But there is coming a day when that transformation will be instantaneous. And I wonder where your thoughts in, in your mind goes when you try to think about how will I remember all of the struggle? Do you know you and I do not know what it's like to wake up without struggle? There's a day coming when we will wake up and there won't be that gravitational pull of our sin and all the effects of the sinful world that we lived in, that there is coming a day where it will be nothing but freedom because of the transformation taking place. There is something worth hanging on to, regardless of what today brings you, tomorrow brings you, or next month brings you, that that ultimate transformation, that instant transformation comes for those whose faith is in Christ. This is what the law could not produce. This is why its glory faded. And Paul said, I am a minister in the new covenant and invites us to be as well. Would you please stand? Lord, this morning, we are thankful, God, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for all of your word. Thank you for the applicability of all portions of scripture. Lord, they all reveal your glory. So this morning in our quick time together, Lord, I pray that your spirit has had ample opportunity to speak to your people, that we would strive for not just what is good, the things that we often settle for that distract us from serving what's greatest, that this new covenant of freedom and transformation and boldness and everything you've given to us, Lord, would be made available to us. 
Thank you, Lord, for your grace, for using such sinners as us to accomplish your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen.